Asia-Pacific Currents. News and labour issues from the Asia-Pacific region. We strongly condemn the, the police that arrest uh, the protesters. Saturday mornings at 9 o'clock. On Community Radio 3CR. Workers of the world should unite to fight this greedy capitalist. Brought to you by Australia Asia Worker League. Good morning and welcome to Asia Pacific Currents. This Saturday, the 21st of August, you're listening to Community Radio 3CR. I'm Giselle Hanna. And I'm Pierre Mora and we welcome you again for another very interesting program on uh, for all you people who are outside of uh, of Melbourne. Yes, we are in uh still in lockdown number six so it just sort of keeps going and um and of, but of course it's a beautiful sunny day so that's good so we hope you are taking care of yourself and of course uh, this uh, program is brought to you by australia asia worker links that's right. If you want to get in touch with us, you can find us on the web or the w's.aawl.org.au. We're on Facebook and Twitter, so look us up on those social media platforms. But, of course, coming up in the second part of the show, obviously, listeners, obviously, you've all been following the um, abhorrent and bodged and failed uh, withdrawal of allied troops from Afghanistan and the um, success of the Taliban in taking over that country. Uh, we're going to speak with Farhan Deir Akbari, who is a, a, um, a researcher and an activist um, and she worked at the Afghanistan Independent Human Rights Commission monitoring and investigating violations of international humanitarian law by parties to the armed conflict in Afghanistan. So we're going to uh, get a historical perspective on 20 years of war that led to this situation. But that is That's that. right. It's always important to um, to look and remember why uh, things, uh, things happen um, as they are happening. So that'll be very interesting. But um, it's just on, I'm just looking at my clock here. It's two past nine o'clock. Actually, I forgot to say um, uh, thanks to Solidarity Breakfast for another interesting program here on 3CR Radio. And that uh, music that you were listening, I can actually tell you, it was by Melanie Horns, Hornsnell, um, Sydney After Dark. And I think they're under curfew, so possibly not much <laughs> happening in Sydney After Dark these days. I don't mean to laugh at them, but um, yes, lockdown. Interestingly, I was going to say this, but I thought it would be too contentious. And here I am saying it. I actually don't think this is lockdown 6.0 in Mel in Victoria. I think it's 5.2 because I think lockdown 5, we came out of it for about 30 seconds and went straight back in. So... I think it was the early um, easing of restrictions that didn't work. Uh, so I think it's the extension of lockdown. We did five. have one day of zero zero. So I, I do. One I day do is not enough. Remember, uh, Dan told us once before <laughs> that we needed a week of zeros before we could ease restrictions, and I I believed him then, and I am sticking with that. All right, five point three. Let's go to news from around the region and we're going to start in Lebanon where the fuel explosion symbolises uh, the Lebanese people's plight. Last Sunday a fuel tanker exploded in Akkad in northern Lebanon killing at least 28 people and injuring 80 others. The fuel storage tanker 
had been found and confiscated by the Lebanese army sometime earlier and they had set up a distribution point for people to access this fuel. Unfortunately, a crowd of around 200 descended on that locality. Uh, Fights ensued and somehow the tanker ignited. Fights over fuel have become commonplace with a confrontation earlier in the week in the northern city of Tripoli, leaving three people dead. The shortage of fuel all around Lebanon is the latest manifestation of the deepening economic crisis and political crisis. I mean, they uh, they have a completely failed government there mm. as well. Earlier this week on Monday, the governor of the Central Bank of Lebanon announced the end of fuel subsidies for the country as the bank was running out of foreign cash reserves and the government is paralysed. The end of fuel subsidies is expected to drive prices for staple goods even higher. Yes, quite a um, uh, an a evolving situation, and we now go to um, Indonesian, where uh, there's been um, a mass protest in the West Papuan province. The Indonesian parliament decision last month of revising and extending for twenty years the special autonomy law for West Papua has ignited a new wave of protests. Local activists claim that not only was the autonomy law passed without any consultation, but a series of amendments to it will further dilute critical aspects of decentralisation and autonomy in how the region is governed. This week's nationwide protests were sparked by the presentation of the Papuans People Petition, organised by a network of over 100 local organisations in Papua, West Papua that called for the retraction of this law. The petition itself was signed by approximately 700,000 people. Another main demand by the protests was the release of political prisoners, especially Victor Yimo, who is the foreign spokesman for the West Papua National Committee and is now facing charges of treason, which obviously carry uh, very long prison sentences. And in Israel, theft of land is set to increase. Protests by Palestinians against house demolitions and illegal settlements continued this week in both Jerusalem and the West Bank villages. The refugee camp just outside Janin City in the northern city, excuse me, in the northern part of the West Bank for Palestinian youths were shot dead by a combined force of undercover Israeli agents and army troops which had attacked the camp. The intent of the raid by the Israeli Special Forces has not been disclosed. Meanwhile, the new Israeli government is moving ahead with a plan to build new settlements comprising of close to 10,000 housing units in occupied West Bank in an area between Ramallah and East Jerusalem. Construction may start as early as next year and once these housing units are completed, the West Bank would be effectively divided in two. I should say, um, I know that the situation in um, Palestine, Israel, seems intractable. AAWL is working on a public meeting to actually discuss very rigorously the way forward for the struggle. So stay tuned for those. We are um, tentatively scheduling that for Saturday the 25th of September. You've announced it now, Giselle. <laughs> yes. Um, the pressure is there. We'll, um, we'll go to Korea, where um, it's both a, a piece of good and bad news. Um, last week, the Korean Metal Workers Union, the KMWU, was able to reach the first ever industry-level agreement on industrial transformation in that sector in regards to the ongoing introduction of new technology to the workplace. 
the agreement uh, involved, uh, involves company ensuring employment security and decent work for workers, providing job training for new technology, abiding to health and safety regulations, and better regulations of the supply chains for these companies. The agreement also uh, included a 5% wage increase, which is always good. Um, Nevertheless, um, this week in a separate matter, the president of the Korean Confederation of Trade Unions, uh, Yang Kyung-soo, was uh, given an arrest warrant by the Seoul Central District Court. Now, Yang's alleged crime was to have organised a rally on the 3rd of July to demand a moratorium on dismissal during the COVID-19 crisis and calling for immediate measures to protect workers' lives and livelihoods. And um, really, we always say organising is not a crime. And in Thailand, anti-government protests continue. The last couple of weeks have seen anti-government protests in numerous cities around Thailand. While anti-COVID-19 restrictions have reduced the numbers of protesters participating, it's obvious that a new cycle of opposition to the military-backed government and the monarchy is developing. The government inept and corrupt rollout of the COVID-19 vaccine over the last few months, sounds like another government I know, has fuelled widespread anger as infection rates are continuing to increase. Many of these latest demonstrations were hit by police violence, leading to protesters being injured. In addition, the police have arrested many of the leaders following the demonstrations. Now, the uh, the allegations, I can only say it's allegation, is that the, there's two main uh, um, vaccines that have been taken in Thailand and one is favoured by the monarchy and one is favoured by the military government and the allegations are they're both uh, getting uh, some money from these contracts. Um, our last item it goes to Malaysia where again uh, it's about COVID-19 where this week on Monday Malaysia's embattled Prime Minister Muhyiddin Yassin tendered his resignation to the Royal Palace after increasing political pressures over the worsening social and economic conditions in the country. Muitin will remain as interim prime minister until a new one is elected. But given Malaysia's unstable coalition of parties, this uh, might drag on. Now, in the meantime, even though lockdowns and restrictions have been in place for months, the COVID-19 pandemic shows no sign of slowing down with over 20,000 cases a day. A recently released report showed that the poverty rate in Malaysia in 2020 increased by over 8% um, in the last year. Human rights activists believe that this deterioration in the uh, economy has only increased uh, during this year. Now, um, overnight, a new prime minister, even though I said it wasn't going to happen quickly, was actually selected, and it's um, Ismail Sabri Yaakob, who comes from the UMNO coalition, so from the party that was in power two years ago and was mired in a huge scandal over uh, one billion Malaysian ringgit um, scandal that was approached by the previous uh, Prime Minister. So um, it's really, in many ways, back to the future in Malaysia. So that'll be very interesting to see how that um, situation now develops. Um, It's uh, just 11 past 9 o'clock. We'll go to a committee announcement, and then we'll be back with that interview on the uh, analysis of what's happening in Afghanistan. Hi, I'm Jacob from a Friday Rave, and I'm also on 3CR's Committee of Management. Now, the community of passionate people 
that founded 3CR a long time ago made some tough decisions. For a start, they committed themselves and a growing community of listeners to back their vision of owning our station and in doing so remaining independent of the government and corporate influence. They did this by fundraising, brick by brick, with working bees, door knocks, on-air drives and all the rest of it. You've all been there. Now, their commitment has kept 3CR on air for over 40 years. That's a long time even in my life. But now we need your commitment to keep this great thing going. Now, you can subscribe online at 3cr.org.au or phone us at the station on 9419 8377 or even stop me on the bloody street if you see me at some rally or other and ask me for a membership form. You need to become a member of Melbourne Radical Radio and subscribe. G'day, this is Richard Franklin. When you've got voice, you've got freedom. Be a little bit free and support 3CR. It's 13 minutes past nine o'clock here on Community Radio 3CR. You're listening to Asia Pacific Currents. As we mentioned earlier in the show, no doubt, listeners, you've been following the situation in Afghanistan with the withdrawal of allied troops and the consequent takeover by the Taliban. Joining us on the program this morning is Farhonde Akbari. Uh, she is a scholar at the Australian National University and currently undertaking a PhD researching the prospect of peace with the Taliban in comparison to the Khmer Rouge. In 2012, she worked at the Afghanistan Independent Human Human Rights Commission, monitoring and investigating violations of international humanitarian law by parties to the armed conflict in Afghanistan. Welcome to the program, Farhonde. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Um, a pleasure to have you, Farhonde. Um, so, um, just as a as a question for our listeners, we'll we'll get to um, what the Taliban uh, version two. Uh, are all about um, now because obviously if people can remember they did um, gain power around 25 years ago as well. Um, the first question is to many people, many people who are not really attuned to what's happened in Afghanistan would have been really surprised about the collapse over the last month or even the last three weeks, the, the speed of it. But my feeling is that this is very much um, due to the the corruption, the inequality, the electoral frauds that have happened over 20 years of these Afghan governments. And um, they had lots, they didn't have much real support around the country. Would that be a reasonable thing to say? Um, I would, yes, I would start with just uh, quoting the Asia Foundation that um, uh, in 2019, just before COVID, that they were able to conduct their survey. 85.1% of the Afghan population uh, indicated that they have absolutely no sympathy for the Taliban. That shows to us that uh, the Taliban lacks that, that grassroots support that they claim. But the fact that the, the elements that you mentioned does play, have played uh, a role in, 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 in the Taliban's victory, and that is corruption, that is 
fighting the wrong strategy. And all of this, too, comes back to our international um, partners, especially the U.S. and also the Afghan government. And, and it is it is a combination of or a combination of failures on on from the U.S. side and from the Afghan government that led to the Taliban victory because the Afghan people, however tired of war they are, they have seen the Taliban before. They have experienced the Taliban before. So Taliban did lack lack that genuine public support. Uh, but at the same time, it's not that the Taliban are so strong and, 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 and supported, but it is, it is the failure on this side that led them to, that, to the failure and, and, and eventual collapse of, of Afghanistan in the hands of the Taliban. So why, why do you think, I mean, obviously it's been 20 years that these uh, successive uh, governments in Afghanistan were in, in power. Why do you think such a level of corruption and um, so little um, nation building was able to go on? And uh, I mean, I heard reports that um, in the end, the military even ran out of bullets. Absolutely. I mean, having looking back at the 20 years of the intervention in Afghanistan, um, we saw that um, at the beginning with the Taliban leaving Kabul, they left Kabul without a bullet being fired, but then they took back Kabul without a bullet being fired. So, but at that time, they in 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 Bonn conference 2000 and December 2001, the U.S. and the other Afghan parties they nego- they put uh, they installed the wrong the wrong form of government for Afghanistan. Afghanistan is a diverse ethnically diverse, very tribal um, uh, society. They put a very centralized presidential system that the, our president had the power of a king, and he was the one um, assigning people from top to bottom. And for a, gov- for a, for a country at war and for, for one man to manage the entire country, it became very difficult. And also knowing that we are diverse politically, culturally, linguistically. And, and first, it was this very centralized system. Secondly, it was, that was part of the deal in, in Bonn conference. And secondly, the corruption. Um, and that started mainly with, uh, with the elections. 2004, the world witnessed how Afghan poured themselves and their heart to the to the bull, uh, to the to the ballot papers, and, and and just to be able to have that opportunity to to nominate uh, who they want them to represent. Because mind you, I mean we are we have seen other episodes of war. We had seen the Soviet invasion. We had seen the the civil war, the Taliban takeover. So 2014, after the transitional government that was set, people really looked forward for that. But that was the only successive election that corruption was low. And then the 2009 presidential election that fraud was immense. And, and, and it, it goes back to that, to that strategy of war. It goes back to the system, the government system, that, um, that led to that... Um, build up um, their route to corruption, and then the 2014 election, and then the 2019 election, which was um, an institutionalized um, uh, uh, fraud. Coming back to the latest one, I was an independent observer for the for the presidential election going to different provinces. I observed less than one million Afghans made it to the to the 
um, uh, to the to the um, uh, elections and centers that day to cast their vote. Why? Because they did not believe in it, because their votes were sold in these previous elections, be it parliamentary or presidential, and it was always that whoever America selects, they would become a president. And then the precedent was that in 2014, when there was a, a reports of fraud, Afghan people did come to the streets, did raise their voice that there are frauds, they need to be investigated. But then the U.S. Secretary of the State, John Kerry, came to Kabul and then made the deal between the two running the running um, uh, candidates, uh, Dr. Abdullah and Dr. Ashokhani, to join a, 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 a unity government. So uh, our tale of misery uh, that we are going through today began um, uh, from before, but mainly from that day when people really lost hope in democracy, in their voice being heard, because U.S. interfered, U.S. and our international partners did not principally take side to do uh, something about this fraud and also side with the people, not, not with the leaders, because the leaders, I mean, the international community were after quick fixes. And then the result is what we are seeing today and the collapse of the entire country. Kabul within hours, the entire country within days. Um, thanks for that. Uh, you've you've given really a, a very um, good summary of, of how over these years the the whole government uh, structure really was hollowed out of any legitimacy. Um, and so, getting to today's or, or these event, events of the last um, week, uh, obviously the Taliban took uh, control twenty five years ago. I think nineteen ninety six, if my memory is correct, the first time. Correct. Um, they were, as a movement, they were much younger. They were literally straight out of the madrasas from uh, Pakistan, and they and they took over the country really quickly. Now it's like twenty five years later. A lot of the um, uh, same leaders are there, but they're much older. A lot of them have lived uh, uh, overseas. Uh, I mean, I remember. Um, when they were in power in the late 90s. I mean, they even destroyed uh, tape recorders and cassettes and, and radios, but now they seem to be totally engaged with social media. So how would you, would you see any difference between the Taliban 1996 version and the Taliban um, 2021 versions? Um, look, we we have been living in in with the Taliban. Uh, my family lived in the in the first version, and my relative and close uh, friends are living in the second version now. Uh, but we, it, it is uh, to, to there has been an argument about that the Taliban have changed, and that narrative came when the U.S. started to abandon the Afghan government and the Afghan people and negotiated. Um, um, an exit agreement, but they called it a peace agreement with the Taliban in 2018. For the U.S. to directly and diplomatically engage with the Taliban, they had to put out this narrative that the Taliban has changed. But from an Afghanistan perspective, from our people, from the people's perspective, the Taliban have changed, yes, but they have gone more brutal. They have gone more advanced in their in their in their atrocity that they have been committing. I mean, look at Afghanistan. It is twenty years it is still continued to be on the top list as the most unstable place in the world. Um the conflict was 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 rampant and the level of violence was huge. 
But the Taliban used different tactics. It, it evolved in as an insurgency using different tactics, different means of uh, another evolution for them was how to use communication technology to promote their ideas and ideology to this to their to their own fighters as well as to communicate to the world but uh, this is part of the Taliban propaganda we have not seen any substance from the Taliban to be hopeful that the Taliban have changed for better the Taliban can govern. The Taliban really struggled to govern Afghanistan in the in, when the first took power in 1995, 1996, and they're still struggling today to, uh, to, to do governance. Um, but they have sort of um, been very successful in managing their communication and their propaganda in a way to rebrand themselves in terms of communicating using this caveat that exists in the world and also the weaknesses that are there and also the, the the lack of appetite from the international community. Everyone wants to get out of Afghanistan. So it's it's a good time for Taliban to polish their portrait, uh, uh, to, to bring that doubt at least that they have changed. But in reality, uh, uh, suicide bombing occurs. The Taliban are as harsh as they are, as they have been. Um, Ideologically, for the Taliban, um, they remain core to what they were, and, and, and the reason even the leadership might need to see the need to change that, but they cannot because as an extremely ideological organization, the cohesiveness of the Taliban as an insurgency have been able to, um, uh, uh, to control uh, their rank and file. And that comes with ideology more than anything else. Um, it, it's, it's not um, it's not the threats of survival. People can always switch sides, and this is very prominent in Afghanistan, especially during the wars, for people to switch sides. But yeah, it is the ideology, you. yeah, right. and, and that ideology was one of the reasons that the Taliban never was not able to compromise in the peace negotiation and also agree to a ceasefire. We've just got a, a couple of minutes, and I just want to ask one last quick question. Um, when they did take over um, 25 years ago, uh, Afghanistan was much less urbanised, uh, much more rural. This time, it's much more urban. There's many more people living in, in the big cities. A lot of the population is much more internationally connected. How do you think they'll be able to govern these new populations? I think that is the biggest struggle. Um, Afghanistan, 75% uh, of the population is under 30 uh, years of age. So that means a lot of the people have been born and raised in the post-2001 era, exposed to the world, connected to the world, and also this revolution of um, technology plays a big role here. So that's why uh, there will really be a struggle. The Taliban cannot hide their atrocities anymore. As we are seeing in the last few days that they took over, there are videos being leaked, but there are restrictions. People are fearful of their lives. And, and uh, the, uh, the, 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 the Afghan youth, I mean, as hopeless as they are today, that the world left them and their leaders, their 
uh, uh, national leaders also abandoned them as our president just uh, flew off from the country. They think that uh, they cannot live in the, the version that we are seeing, the Taliban that they are. Um, they're not able to evolve, but it's the Taliban that have to evolve and melt down to the, in, into the realities of the society. Uh, there is a large uh, educated population um, uh, in Afghanistan uh, by opening of schools and uh, internet, students going to universities, returning back to Afghanistan. Yes, the Taliban would really struggle, and this is what we have to witness in the days to come, how the Taliban would form a government to be able to uh, uh, satisfy um, a different constituency and also have a say. But, but we are not very ho hopeful. We think we have just uh, entered another cycle of war. All right. Well, thank you very much. We're really at the end of uh, of our time, but um, thanks, um, Fakonden. That's uh, that's a fantastic uh, summary of, of what's happening, and uh, uh, thanks for that. And we'll certainly keep abreast of the developments. And uh, thank you very much. Pleasure. Thank you for having me. Have a good day. All right. Cheers. Thanks. Bye. That was Farhonde Akbara, and she's a scholar at the Australian National University, um, and she was speaking about the current unfolding situation in Afghanistan with the um, defeat, I guess, of, uh, I could almost call it US imperialism in the Middle East and the takeover of the Taliban. That's right. And uh, we'll have uh, a very quick community announcement, and then we'll be back um, to say goodbyes. Hi, it's Paul Kelly here. Hi, this is Shane Howard here, asking you to support 3CR. Independent radio station, encouraging independent music and independent thought. They've been supporting musicians for more than 30 years, so let's support them. It's just on 29 past and 9 o'clock, and I would say uh, Giselle Afghanistan is in Central Asia, but there you go. I'm, I'm the geographer. <laughs> um, anyway, that's all that we have for you today. You've been listening to Asia Pacific Currents, brought to you every week by Australia Asia Worker Links on your favourite community radio station. This is Pierre Morrow. And I'm Giselle Hannah. And stay listening to Palestine Remembered. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.